listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'd like to welcome back Dr. Amy Baxter. She's the founder and CEO of Pain Care Labs. And if anybody remembers our last discussion, we talked about pain management and how her device called Buzzy is so innovative, uh, really directing initially towards uh, children in pediatrics with regards to being afraid of getting that shot, that pinch, and how it um, really alleviates and gets their attention off of that. Um, but today we're, we're bringing um, Amy back because of her uh, recent study on, um, on a paper that she participated in called Rapid Initiation of Nasal Saline Irrigation to Reduce the Severity and High-Risk COVID Plus Outpatients, as well as the surge and rise, which I'm so excited to have you here, Amy, talking about functional medicine and the balance between pharmaceutical-grade medications and what nature has given us and the role of the pharmacist in that. So, Amy, welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thank you so much, Todd. It's always a joy to be here. So your last podcast was uh, pretty popular uh, with regards to other uh, ways of controlling pain and, and the psychology of pain management, too, um, and and really got some great feedback through social media on, on that episode. Um, before we get going, there may be um, people that are listening that this is the first time that they've heard from you. So Let's just do a, a brief introduction on you, as well as um, your um, your main goals as, as CEO of um, of Pain Care Labs, and then we're going to get into the discussion today around um, around the the functional medicine and functional initiative. That's like I said, it's it's growing. It's it's growing at a at a tremendous pace, and I like seeing pharmacists in the middle of it all. Sure. Well, I'm a pediatric emergency doctor by training and did a couple ADHD deviations along the way. I did a child abuse fellowship and studied liver enzymes and timing abuse. And then I made a nausea scale, validated something called the uh, the Baxter Animated Retching Faces Scale, which I'm very pleased to say, if you look up what acronyms are, people now think that BARF came from the name of my scale, which it totally didn't, but that's still, uh, that's still fun. And then I got interested in needle pain and invented a device that uses gate controls to block pain. So I think I've always been a very simple mechanistic person, just, you know, what's a mechanical solution to this? It's a very emergency department thing. It's like, okay, well, we don't have that size tube, so let's put two of those tubes together and stick that tube in there. And anybody got an 11 blade, we can put a hole in that and stick that in there. Um, so that that suited me well, both the ADHD part and the tinkering thing. The buzzy specifically uses a frequency that we now understand does 90% of gate control. So gate control is like you bang your hand with a hammer, you wave your hand around to make the pain stop, or you burn your finger, you stick it under cold water. And it turns out that while we've been trying to use electricity topically in TENS units to make that work, and it's not really worked that well, the way that Buzzy works is it uses a specific frequency that triggers the motion mechanoreceptors, the motion nerves, so 
if you're using, and then it also adds ice. So compared to using fake ice with a chemical and fake motion with electricity, we're using real ice and real motion. And so it blocks 88% of needle pain. So very mechanical, very simple, but very much based on physiology. Thank you for that. And and the the paper that you were participa participating in this research uh, touches on another way of of preventing and combating uh, COVID-19. And then we could start talking about the variations for that, for that matter. But before we start, I kind of wanted to get your viewpoint before we get into the discussion around the study, as well as some of the things I'd like to ask you about the future of functional medicine. And that is, why do you think it took so long to get this information published and, and get this incredible participation with, um, there were half a dozen, if not almost a dozen participants to get this information out there for other healthcare providers to, to understand as well as to leverage for their own practices. So regarding the, the nasal irrigation for, um, exactly. for, for, for COVID. So uh, let me back up a little and tell your, tell your listeners uh, about what the study was. My current funding is using an array of different frequencies for low back pain and opioid reduction. So after I felt like I squared away the needle pain issue and tried to raise awareness of needle fear, and then people said, oh, yeah, but you're selling something. And I was like, yeah, a totally reusable thing that lasts for a decade. So once I got frustrated with trying to change people's minds about needle fear and what if there's a pandemic, um, I moved over to the next biggest problem, which I thought was opioid use. And so to get a simple solution to reduce pain from opioid use, I got a grant from the NIH for putting an array of vibration together on a plate with multimodal, either heat or cold and different arrangements. So the harmonics of the vibration could hit the spine or the nerve roots or the, the muscles. Um, that got shut down with COVID. And so I couldn't do my regular research. And on February 22nd, when I heard that there was a case of COVID in Italy that they didn't have a contact for, I emailed my team and I said, okay, guys, buckle up, buy, buy shelf-stable milk, um, take your money out of the stock market. This is going to be real and it's going to be big. So my team did. And as I started trying to figure out in March and April with everything we knew, it was like, oh my gosh, this is obviously aerosol. This is obviously related to density of people living together. This is clearly, we need to be using masks because it's aerosol. Um, and then I, I started looking at the ACE2 receptor and started thinking about the nasal biome. I think that the functional medicine concept really dovetails with our understanding of biomes. So you've got the microbiome in the gut and everybody knows about that now. I mean, a decade ago, talking about a fecal transplant for anything would have been laughed out of a grant proposal meeting, but now it's it's legitimate science. So the nasal biome is just as complicated. It's just as interesting. And as I began thinking about how COVID was spreading, it became so clear to me that places in the world where people weren't dying was what you want to look at. There's something called the power of positive deviance. And the idea is if almost everybody's having a problem, but a couple people who should be aren't, ask those people, talk to them, observe them. You have to really dig down deep because they don't think they're doing anything differently, but there's something about it that's making them not die, survive. So anyway, I started by 
looking at where in the world people were not dying from COVID and were not catching it. And at that time, there were three cases in Vietnam. I happened to live in Thailand for a few months doing research with the Armed Forces Research Institute on dengue. And so because I've been there, I know how nasal irrigation is a big part of their daily hygiene. What I was thinking was that the ACE2 receptors, which were obviously, you know, by, by end of April, we knew ACE2 was how SARS-CoV-2 was getting in. So I thought maybe mechanically, just like in surgery, the solution to pollution is dilution. So maybe if we just flushed it out, then the virus levels would go down and you wouldn't get sick. Maybe that's why they're not getting sick in Thailand and Laos and Vietnam. When I was thinking about this, I was I had, I had pages of numbers all over my table. It was like you know, looking at BMI and looking at the temperatures and looking at humidity and looking at all of these different things. And it was interesting because humidity seemed to matter, but maybe it was just because it was cold and places in the world where it was it was spreading more rapidly were places where people were really close together, but also more likely to be obese. And so trying, you know, and more, you know, how many cubic feet of, of living area do people have in different areas, all this stuff. And I realized that this obesity issue, that ACE2 receptors were more common and or more more prevalent in people who are obese. So I thought, okay, so maybe the ACE2 receptors are in the nose and that would put these two theories together. Bottom line, emailed this guy who was an expert on obesity and ACE2 receptors. And he said, you may wanna look at this paper. And that paper showed that it was in, in nature. And it showed that the only place in the body that had both the, the protease that could activate the SARS-CoV-2 and also had this ACE2 receptor, the only place in the body was the nose. And it was only on ciliated epithelia, the little wiggly guys. And so that was where I thought, oh my gosh, if we flush it out, they can't stick to the ACE2 receptor and you won't get sick. So it took me about three months to raise money. My, my home institution is Augusta University. Uh, Richard Schwartz, who's the emergency director there, was willing to let me do it. And we put this study together and started enrolling people in September. And I wanted to make sure that it was it was the sickest possible people. I wanted a, a community where there was a very high rate of obesity. It was a, our BMI was 30 point something on average in our study. I wanted people who were older, so 55 and up is what I used. And I wanted people that had a lot of pre-existing conditions. And so that community that used the Augusta testing in the Augusta emergency room, um, they were all of that. And so I figured if we can stop them from dying, then this is something that anybody can use. So we had 79 people that we enrolled. And at the time I was thinking that maybe you had to be more basic. Uh, so we added alkalinization to some of the, the nasal irrigant. Some of them uh, thought, you know, betadine is what they use in bacterial nasal irrigation when you have sinusitis. So let's, and it's a very good killer of SARS-CoV-2 in vitro. So, you know, let's do that for both of them and then do a controlled trial against the two of them. So that was how it got started. And we did find indeed that it reduced the level of hospitalization about eight and a half times, even with the most conservative. If I was liberal with the numbers, it would be 19X reduction in hospitalization and nobody died. It's incredible. So what, um, after publishing this, I mean, you, you don't just think on the micro, you're more macro thinking, how would this apply to other facets of 
the world of vaccines and controlling viruses. And I mean, is, is this something else that we can follow up on to use for, for other breakouts? It's an interesting question. The, the, so the initial SARS-CoV-2, I guess you could call it the wild type virus, it was so beautifully suited to nasal irrigation because it was really hard for it to get on the ACE2 receptor and it took forever and it didn't, none of the other proteases would work. You had to have Tempris 2 and that's why it took so long to spread and it was only local spread. It wasn't bloodborne and it was perfect for this. That's that whole long incubation gave you plenty of time to reduce the viral load. Now that it's Omicron, you can use other proteases that, um, so in the throat, that's why now it can enter in the throat when it didn't used to be able to. Um, you can even go directly into the lungs, which it didn't used to be able to. So we're kind of back in that same um, realm of the, the Sunken article that I mentioned that was uh, nasal irrigation in Thailand and Laos and Vietnam that showed that it decreased the duration of flu and other coronaviruses by 20 by 48 hours. So um, we found that in our study too. The more often you did nasal irrigation, if it was two or more, you had about a three-day shortened duration of symptoms. And so I, I think that you know they we didn't used to even brush our teeth in this country until World War II. We didn't have nylon until 1918, something like that. But people didn't care about using nylon toothbrushes because they didn't care about brushing their teeth until it became popular when the GIs came back and Pepsi didn't have those commercials going. Ju -ju 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 -ju. So I think that there's something I, I think we we will move with pollution, with everything else, and also with the understanding of the biome importance. We're going to move to having nasal irrigation be a part of normal hygiene. What was interesting that I didn't expect, and I think this was part of also why it was harder to get this published, was people have a bias against things they don't understand, and they have a bias against mechanical solutions. Even if they see it working, we want to understand why it's working before we believe it. Saline and salt make the nasal biome function better. SARS-CoV-2 doesn't replicate in isotonic, uh, in hypotonic environments. So if you give it a nasal saline bath, all of a sudden now the cells closest to the virus are isotonic. So, so you don't have that low sodium problem. Not only that, but the whole thing earlier about how drier humidities were catching COVID more, well, it's because you're drying out the nose. It's not actually the cold as much as it is the humidity, because if you've got a dry nasal biome, then the cilia aren't moving, they're not pushing things around. And so all of those things are, are less functional if it's not both moist and salinated. Then there's also a whole, you know, the chlorine comes off the ion and you get a little hydrochloric acid that changes the, the, um, the neutrophil uh, activity. And so there's, there's about five ways that it's just, it's just the saline. So all the other stuff that people want to sell doesn't really matter. Um, none of those additives have shown any difference and it seems like it's really just the volume of saline. So I wanted to also ask you about the whole vaccine resistance, um, that that's taking place has been taking place for, for years. And, those are um, viruses that are finding ways to continue to live, even though we have vaccines. There's even a Time uh, magazine um, article that recently came out that said scientists find a new coronavirus in bats 
that has risen to the current vaccine. Um, And what it makes me think of is Robert Kress, who was the first pharmacist that talked to me nearly 12 years ago about functional medicine and how he is, um, his whole practice now and his counseling of his own patients is all based on functional medicine and how he, you know, professes, believes, and trains other pharmacists to combine the world of uh, pharmaceutical grade manufactured um, medicines, but then not to forget about the world of functional medicine and nature and, you know, in, in your environment and stress relief and all of this stuff that we know impacts healthcare and, um, and diabetes, hypertension, you know, heart attack, heart disease, all of this plays into that. And when I heard him initially, it wasn't really like that popular, but today, you know, 12 years later, there are so many pharmacists now that are saying, wait a second, my community pharmacists that aren't held back from the corporate world of doing just what corporate says. It's these Mm -hmm. independently owned pharmacists that get to do pretty much whatever they want to do under the guise of obviously FDA and evidence-based medicine. But boy, is there a large gap between one or the other? And that is, there is a place, I honestly believe, and I know that the the studies are are rising and increasing. There is a place for functional medicine, functional practice, nature, and the combination of what is our pharmaceutical grade medications. And I know you're a believer in that too, but I want you to kind of help unravel uh, such an enormous topic that you and I could talk about for two weeks straight, if not longer, and really kind of give your background and and your belief in, in not forgetting about nature in the world of healthcare. Yeah. Well, you know, it's I, I think that this is so hard to talk about when you're an evidence-based person because people misconstrue it. And one of the reasons why it was hard for me to get Buzzy accepted and it was hard for me to get this paper published is because doctors are really risk-averse about other people's opinions. They don't want to go out on a limb. My patron saint is Ignat Semmelweis. Do you know who Ignat Semmelweis was? I don't. Bless his heart. He was a Hungarian OBGYN in the 1840s, and he was the first person who realized that childbed fever was coming because uh, in the wards where people were not washing their hands between patients and in the nursing wards where they washed their hands with with lye and water before they went to each patient, they weren't dying. He got put in an institution, he got put in a mental institution for an OBGYN article he wrote about the value of hand washing and and ended up getting um, abused by the guards at the mental institution and died 45 days later. So so Ignat Semmelweis, and I talk about him in my in my paper, which is in the journal Ear, Nose, Throat, if anyone wants to look it up. But I, I talk about him because the big jumps in life expectancy were with hand washing and sulfa drugs. And everything else has been insanely incremental. So we spend all of our time memorizing all of these really incremental differences when the baseline functional things of being getting enough sleep, being baseline healthy, being having being well nourished, those things make such a big difference. The other really big thing is, and this is particularly in our country and not in others, but if there is no lobby, you're not going to be able to learn about it unless you spend the effort yourself. 
So you know that I'm a huge fan of magnesium for pain management, that it's an anti-inflammatory, neuro-anti-inflammatory. It is an NMDA blocker, so it decreases the amount of opioids you need. Awesome. But the best the FDA did was recently say, we won't say it doesn't lower blood pressure. <laughs> and all of the other things that we use it for, we use it to lower to lower. Um, inflammation in neonates if you it's not just for stopping stopping contractions and we call it tocolysis it's not just for that it's also because now it's protective for the baby's brain so they're giving it to mothers who may have preterm birth just to be a neuro anti-inflammatory because kids brains do better well so does so do migraines so does general body pain so if there's no lobby for it you're not going to learn that kind of information we don't have a really good trusted source for those kinds of things, except for pharmacists. Because you guys are surrounded by all of these things that can help from both a, a brain body standpoint and giving comfort from a pain management standpoint, but also you've got the actual um, things like magnesium that work. A lot of the supplements obviously don't do much at all, but some do and specific things like, you know, okay, dry eye. Well, that's a good place for vitamin E. That's a good place for fish oil can, you know, fish oil and using the Q-tips that you also sell and scrubbing the bottom of the eyelids. Those two things together reduce dry eye. Yeah, so there's a lot of functional things that it's it the the question is how do we overcome this barrier to get it out there? Interesting thing about I mean you said vaccine resistance and I I I think we we are both talking about uh, reluctance or hesitancy, but also about like why were why is COVID so um, resistant to vaccines? Well, again, it goes straight back to it's not a bloodborne virus. Mm. Your antibodies, if you put them in with a vaccine through a needle, are gonna be bloodborne. And so you have to wait till it penetrates into your bloodstream before the antibody is going to do anything. This is why a nasal vaccine makes so much sense because that's where it's still primarily going in and your respiratory tract is where you want to attack it. Just like with the uh, rotavirus, you know, that it goes in through the GI tract. So that's where you want to attack it. So um, I, I think that there's a lot of habitual thinking that happens in medicine and it's hard to turn that ship around. So I do want to state, I mean, the growth and demand for alternative medicine, um, which to me is just another facet of, of medicine. So I don't I don't separate it in my mind. Um, this is an 18 billion dollar industry that's expected to grow uh, to 210 billion by 2026. And what you know, there's a balance here. There's the scariness of, of the run amok, uh, the fish oil salespeople that are out there that will take advantage of the public, just like you and I said um, before. Fish oil's good. Snake oil, bad. Fish oil, good. That's right. <laughs> but not for joints. Doesn't seem to work for that. But yes, dry eye. Dry eye, yes. Yes. Sorry. So keep going. Therein lies the <laughs> of the physician pharmacist teams that can capitalize on what is evidence-based and helping helping our consumers to understand what is real and what is not. And I think we start out with things that are already proven um, to leverage that knowledge and then educate, educate, educate. And I think it starts with educating our pharmacists because I'm biased, obviously, just to profess and get that information out. But where do we start when we're talking about helping pharmacists to grow their functional uh, health um, services to their, to their consumers and patients? 
Sure. Well, first thing is I wouldn't call it alternative because I do think that sets up a dichotomy. I don't even call it complementary. I call it comprehensive. So I think that comprehensive medicine is understanding where the fixes are and then understanding where the supporting or speeding those fixes are and then understanding where kind of the the milieu is and making your body more ready to be healthy and to take those fixes. And then there's also the the mental part, which we're more and more understanding, is actually very related physiologically to whether those other things work at all. Uh, interesting study. I was at a conference and lecturing in the Netherlands two weeks ago in Maastricht. And there's a cool study looking at the pain relief of remifentanil when you have it scheduled and the patient knows they're getting it versus when it's given randomly. And it's twice as effective if the patient knows they're getting it than if they don't know and it just is, you know, same amount. It's just whether it's whether it's randomly given or whether the nurse comes and gives it to the person and they know they're getting it. So your brain is so responsible for how well any of these things work. It can be up to 50% of whether these medicines work is because of how you think about them. So how do we get started and how do we do this? Well, um, I have been contacting a lot of the the big chains of pharmacies to say, look, I do research on this. The NIH has got so much on it now. Here is part of what works you know, specifically for pain is having a plan that the person makes themselves. So I've got resources, which I'll share and you can share with your listeners, but it does start with this. Okay. There's surgery, there's um, biologics. There's very few things that really make a difference. And then there's the specific supplements for different things that mostly are working on autoimmune and your immune system. And then here's the physical treatments and here's the, the brain body ways to maximize the impact of those. So I think that if, um, and as actually, as we were talking, I was like, I need to talk to Dave Wendelin at at, uh, the the drugstore news place and anybody who's put into your hamaker, that's who he's with. But, but, you know, we need a planogram that has areas that are not just, okay, here's your cold vibration heat device. It's here's a comprehensive thing for pain and with labels that are like, you know, migraine, da, 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 and, and not just have all of our supplements in one big schmear. We need a couple hubs like CVS has the, the oncology hub. And so they carry things for, for needle pain, for um, baldness, for, for mouth sores, for you know, all the things you need when this is your problem. So I think that that's, for one thing, um, we could start really easily with just having lists that pharmacists had pre-printed that they could give out, which are evidence-based comprehensive ways to deal with a lot of the everyday problems that we have. So I think of that collaborative opportunity and knowing that if the patient is is dealing with this chronic condition, that's a prime opportunity as a pharmacist that really is starting to expand their additional services and consultancy to start thinking of the natural way of dealing with uh, chronic disease, uh, exercise, meditation, stress relief, um, you know, eating at the right times based on your metabolism, the world of nutraceuticals and uh, nutrigenomics and um, pharmacogenomics, it's, it's fascinating, but boy, it ties right into what we're talking about to once again, 
back up and say we're we're basing some of the recommendations from our physician pharmacist teams on these test outcomes that are showing you shouldn't be eating you know xyz you're lactose intolerant or your um your body's different than your mother or your body's different than your friend and that's the case uh, for me personally it took until age 49 before i realized hey i shouldn't be eating dairy all that often if at all and sure enough my body has responded to that i'm having less irritable bowel syndrome that i didn't know what i was going through and it was all based on my diet i didn't have to take one medication to make that change in what that pharmacist shared with me i hugged her and told her after follow-up it only took about three months that it's working and so this is an opportunity for our care collab collaborations to really rise in functional medicine so in the rise of chronic disease, long-term pain, uh, the need for all, um, you know, uh, differentiation in what we're doing, what's, what's your advice to the pharmacists listening to how to reach out to physicians and start talking about this as a supplement to uh, pharmaceutical care? Well, for starters, I, I'm not sure that reaching out to physicians is going to be that helpful. Because because you're up on what you're up on. And as a physician, my superpower is I have a DEA number and I can write for drugs. And so that superpower means that's where we default to, because that is what we value about the uniqueness of our profession and what we've been trained in. Now, I'm obviously making generalities and I love being a doctor and I love my fellow doctors. But I think that the place where this actually should start and it makes sense for it to start is in the pharmacies because the families and patients are have to go to a pharmacy before they can get a drug and they have to pass through all of that stuff that's in the bins that's on sale that's multicolored um, they have to go through all that before they get to the pharmacy and so i think that the it, it really is simple the two big things that are at the core are sleep and movement and so if pharmacists can become really good at helping people with their sleep and then helping people just be with their movement, that those are the, the two biggest for almost all aspects of health. Um, saying exercise is intimidating when you're 400 pounds and it hurts to move. So saying, try to get to the place where you can move more comfortably and try this for comfort for pain, try this for comfort for pain, heat, cold, vibration, pressure. There's so many different options, magnesium. There's a lot of different things. I think the other great thing about a pharmacist is that they know their patients, they know their populations, especially in the, the independent pharmacies. They really know their communities. So they can be patient with patients and encourage their, their, their customers who come in, say, look, you know, how long to take you to develop this? Well, it'll take about that long for this to go away. So start keeping notes, you know, start, well, let's try this. What did you try? Maybe in a patient's chart, have a place for non-farm and for, for functional um, things so that you can say, well, you know, you did use that, that magnesium, how'd that work for you? So I think that, that the place to start is for pharmacists to understand a little bit about what to put together. And again, we've, we've, I mean, I, my, my focus is pain. So I've got the evidence-based support for functional pain um, or for functional interventions for pain, but 
but there are others. Sleep is one thing that I think a lot of people are starting to look at heart rate variability. I've got one of those aura rings myself and every morning I wake up and I see, ooh, what was my sleep score? What was my HRV? How's my readiness? Um, the things I've learned, which I didn't know, are simply don't eat late at night. And if you're gonna drink, do day drinking. Don't do it at night because that also messes it up. So those two simple things I never knew. I, melatonin has got a, a certainly has got its own risks right now, and people are talking about it and putting warnings on it for children. But um, whether it's melatonin, whether it's timing your exercise, and as you, to your point about getting to know your own body, keeping track of these things, I think that's something that a pharmacist can help their customers with when they see them over time. Well, I'm hearing from pharmacists who are. Um, working with people that are, you know, obese or suffering with pain and um, wanting to get um, a sense of freedom. Um, I've talked with pharmacists who are starting to focus on very specific uh, conditions, as well as the world of combining the digital therapeutic with monitoring and ongo ongoing data extraction from the Omnipods that they can wear to inject insulin automatically or Dexcom, um, which can constantly gives readings um, to the care team. This is powerful instrumentation and technology that can be coupled with the world of uh, expanding functional um, medicine, functional health care. Where does technology fit in when it comes to you, uh, Amy? You're one of the probably the best people to ask this question because of the development of your device, um, you know, to, to help divert um, pain from, from children and now, of course, adults, but where else is there an opportunity to leverage uh, technology and expanding our, our functional medicine reach? I think it's a great question. And my answer might surprise you or not, given that we've talked about me being a very simple person. I think that dumb tech is probably a better movement on a population basis than smart tech. Investors are moving away from digital health, and the reason is because it is really great for people who are at the top of the food chain, who are um, very well educated and have disposable income to be able to afford a $450 aura ring to tell me whether I slept well or not. But the majority of humanity, um, especially in our country, they cannot afford these digital solutions. So concentrating on optimizing non-digital, simple tech makes a lot more sense. When it comes to people monitoring, I, I give a, a lecture about um, to medical liaisons about how to interact with families and what they need. The thing is that we, if you ask a techie person, you're gonna get a techie solution, but families are juggling um, making food, two or three jobs, multiple kids, having to go different places, the stress of transportation, what if your transportation breaks down? They don't have the time to put together the answers from a lot of this digital tech. So either we have to build it into the algorithms that tell people very simple instructions or empower people to be able to, to judge themselves if something's helping. It's one of the things, one of the reasons I haven't put sensors in our VibraCool. So we have a device that is the frequency of Buzzy, but it's got bigger ice packs or heat packs, and it's got a cuff that you can put on for knee pain, elbow pain, plantar fasciitis. Um, it is being trialed as we speak. It's a major pharmaceutical or major pharmacy. But the thing about it is, is that it works on contact. And so people know that their pain has gone away. 
think that the thing about tech and leveraging a lot of that data is that um, you need that tech to make sense of it and tell you the answers. You need it to tell it, or it's just, or just don't even bother because it's too expensive for our normal patients and it's not as helpful. If, yeah. <laughs> There's another initiative with many of our consultant pharmacists who are transitioning strictly out of senior care and now they're moving into chronic care uh, management that will also encompass um, a repeated um, uh, checkup um, and, and the wellness uh, checkups that are actually even compensated by um, Medicare plans and annual wellness uh, visit checkups that um, pharmacists like um, many of the community owners are now having a nurse practitioner either part of their team permanently or they'll bring a visiting nurse practitioner in or even a, a, a physician assistant to kind of do these uh, different um, checkups that differentiate from just running a prescription or following up with medication uh, therapy management, which is very important too. But like I said in the beginning, there's that balance between the two. Um, what steps out of the gate do you think could be employed by a pharmacist listening right now who wants to um, kind of take advantage of the rise of our popularity in functional medicine? This is an opportunity to grab a hold of this back up your evidence-based understanding about medication interactions, medication allergies, medication foods, and now start to employ more uh, functional medicine into, into community pharmacists and the consultancy pharmacists too. So what do you think about that? I think it comes down to time. When I was getting my flu shot this weekend, the Kroger pharmacist where I get my flu shot didn't have time, but found out that I was the person who invented Buzzy. And he's like, oh, my seven month old got the shot with that. They put it on his tummy when he got his vaccines. And I was like, hey, he's like, all right, look, um, don't bother coming back tomorrow. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of you now. I actually didn't have a Buzzy with me, but, um, but you know, no problem, got the shot. The thing is he was so busy and they had somebody who called out and, and they don't really have time. You, you, a lot of times I think um, we don't have time to talk to patients. So the two things I think I would say are um, just ask either a um, how is it how easy is it for you getting around and how well are you sleeping because those two questions open up the two biggest areas I think for improvement in pain management and health in general and then if you have a a two or three things that you want to recommend for either of those two then that's a really simple way to start really understanding where your patients are because if you if they don't volunteer it you're not going to hear it and you have to specifically ask this is something that was interesting about the needle fearing that i've often felt would be really important for anybody who's prescribing biologics to someone or lovenox and they find they're not fulfilling their they're not filling their scripts as often so we asked during the pandemic um you know, for only people who hadn't gotten a vaccine, we said, um, why haven't you gotten a vaccine? And 16% said afraid of needles. Then we said, what worries you about getting the vaccine? And 26% said the pain and 23% said fainting or making a fool of myself. Um, okay, that's interesting. So then same people, we said, how afraid of needles are you? And 52% were three, four or five out of five afraid of needles. 
And if they were the ones who were the most suspicious about vaccine efficacy, they were three times more likely to have a high fear of needles. So, so if you don't ask, how do you feel about needles? How are you sleeping? How are you moving? Then you're not going to be able to suggest the best functional supports that you have all around you other places in the pharmacy. I seriously, that would love to work with somebody who could, could take some of the things that we've researched and put it together into a little mini planogram for a little sleep planogram, a little movement planogram, because movement's usually pain. So, I mean, they overlap so much, but, but those two things, we can get people moving and get them sleeping. It's going to improve health so much. I agree. And in what you just said, vertical specificity and, and, and diving into one specific condition and working in that condition for the, the patient will or, or client customer is going to build other opportunities uh, with regards to sleep and, and some of the basics, the ABCs of healthcare. And sometimes we forget about that with how busy some of these big, huge uh, community um, chain pharmacies can get where they're banging out 600, 2,000, 3,000 prescriptions a day. And we have to just slow down and realize that people will do uh, better with a all-encompassing strategy rather than thinking, I'm going to take a pill for that and everything's going to be okay. And that's just not the case. It's, it's absolutely not the case. I don't think any pharmacist out there, the active 310,000 pharmacists in the United States that are active right now, I would agree with the statement that it, you, it's not a, a magic bullet that you take this, this uh, tablet or you take this capsule, this pill, this medication, and everything's going to be great. There's a responsibility for the patient, the physician, the pharmacist to work together to really improve and sustain and, and make these people thrive again rather than just just surviving. I mean, it's not, it's not to me, I don't want to survive. I want to thrive, but that's just yeah. me. Yeah, I, I think we've all been sucked into this one answer by multiple choice tests. I think that from as soon as it'd be interesting to look at, as soon as we started teaching kids and teaching doctors and pharmacists with multiple choice tests, we're intrinsically saying there's one right answer. Nobody really thinks there's one right answer, but it is where we're biased because that's how we're used to being educated is there is one question and there's one answer. Amy, I've really enjoyed talking with you again. Um, you have to you have to come back. We have to maybe put together a, um, a panel next time where we have some pharmacists on and maybe some of the contacts that you bring to the table. But so impressed with your work and, and also your entrepreneurial uh, spirit. And I think that brings a lot in the innovation of medicine and healthcare. So thank you so much for being here again. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I wouldn't have been an entrepreneur if anybody else would do it, but there's no lobby for reusable vibrating bees for pain. So somebody had to do it. And uh, thus the entrepreneurial side had to start. If you want to make a change in the world, you got to play by the rules. So thank That's you again for having me on. It's really very fun and I'd love to be back. Thank you, Amy. Thank you.